Welcome to Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, and I'm really excited today to be talking with Dr. Bob Edelman. He's a professor of Russian history and the history of sports at University of California, San Diego. And he's been kind enough um, to share with us some of his expertise given the um, ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine and we're going to talk about its relationship to sports, solidarity in sports, athlete activism, et cetera. So welcome to the show, Bob. It's great to see you. It's great to be here. And right now I'm wearing a Chernomoria Odessa uh, shirt for their, uh, their soccer team there. Okay, so I want to just start off. There's, there's a few places that we could start, but I'd like to start off with this one particular athlete that we're hearing a lot about who is a striker for Dynamo, um, Fedor Smolov. Oh, sure. Who plays for the Russian national team and was one of the first that we read from Russia to uh, speak out against the invasion. I'm, I'm wondering um, how common that is, what effect you think that type of, of activism has or, or your reactions to that? I, I know him well. I know his game well. I know the strengths and weaknesses of that game. Uh, and I was surprised. I really didn't know anything about him as a political actor at all. Mm. It's the only case that I've seen so far, but I don't think it's going to be that extensive among Russian players. Uh, I do am interested, in, let's say, in what the foreign players on these various teams are going to be doing in, in the uh, near future, and that is uh, watched yesterday's Spartak, the team I've written about, play a central army team, Seska, lose 2-0, and uh, all of their foreign players were there, right? So uh, that's going to be something that's interesting to watch in terms of activity or activism or just response to obviously what I would call crushing political pressure. And, you know, when you see players speak out, whether they're playing on foreign teams or within the Russian league, is this something that you're immediately concerned for their safety or do they have enough notoriety that you think they have a degree of, of safety? I've been talking to my Russian friends, some of whom are fairly active in uh, these events and they seem somewhat sanguine about it, but I've uh, been focusing really on the Russian piece of the puzzle in terms of the domestic opposition to the war. And I, don't know yet that people who are involved in it, even people on the streets, are deathly afraid for their personal safety. I mean, they expect to be taken off the street, perhaps at worst, in a couple of days in jail. At least that's for now. If things continue to turn for worse domestically there in terms of the economic situation uh, and and maybe even something ghastly like the nuclear situation, uh, I can only imagine what would happen. And right now, all of these bodies, whether it's UEFA being pressured or FIFA to pull out from Russia, to sanction them, to, you know, not hold tournaments. Do you think that that is efficacious? Do you think Putin will care? Could it backfire? What do you think when you hear that? Well, that's a great question. You know, so we're here because we all believe that there's a connection between sport and politics. And we want to believe that somehow sport can have an impact on that. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And you know, we want to justify what we're doing for a living by virtue of the fact that we believe it, it would. 
But uh, I've been very careful about it. I'm actually somewhat surprised because the Infantino, the head of FIFA, was you know, very closely uh, tied to, comfortable with Putin. Uh, I paid a great deal of attention to him during the World Cup in 2018, which was the last time I was in Russia. And so I was surprised that they moved that quickly. I mean, I tried to uh, kind of uh, think of another situation historically in sport where uh, there was a nation that had been excluded. Of that. We're talking about South Africa and the dithering with which the IOC and FIFA and others, other federations approached that situation. I thought, well, maybe we'll find that here because they're invested in them through things like Gazprom, which is a very big player in terms of report, supporting the Champions League and other things. UEFA is complicit here as well. So I think it has an impact on public opinion inside Russia, but how much I can't say but it's worth uh, at least doing in terms of whether you are a moral person or not and you want to uh, you are outraged by what's going on in ukraine that's a place i've spent a lot of time and so i would like to believe that it has an impact uh, but in the short term probably not so much but in the long term i think that definitely is part of what people have to understand in russia that there are costs to what their government's doing i mean have you seen much reaction within we've seen some images and things of, of Russians protesting domestically. Have you been able to see much of that? Yeah, I, I inhale it as much as I possibly can because it's what gives me hope. Uh, my closest friend, the guy who's translating my book into Russian, has been out on the streets. And one of the things that has been somewhat chilling is that some of those demonstrations are taking place at the uh, Mayakovsky place, which is on the main street of uh, Tverskaya. And that was a short walk from where I had lived uh, in many occasions when I've been in, in Russia. And so it, it brought it to, to home. And uh, I don't know what others are going to be doing. And I have to be careful about my communication with them. And I also am terribly sad by the fact that I'm probably not going to go back there in a short term. I was supposed to give lectures to a Russian university on Zoom in, in a couple of months. And that's not going to happen now. In terms of, I mean, we just finished the Olympic cycle. Mm. Right. We just saw these athletes compete as part of the Russian Federation, but technically sanctioned. So they're not supposed mm. to represent Russia per se. I mean, did all of the sports washing that's taken place from 2018, the attempts to to kind of present even before that Sochi, right, like presenting Russia in a particular light. Has that been effective in in promoting Putin's image as maybe a, a more reasonable or, or, or likable figure? Or do you think that it doesn't have any effect? You know, they, they do these things and we know that people search out, nations search out to be host to mega events as part of their own branding process and attempting to appear uh, prestigious and, and gain international prestige. Then you have something like Sochi, right? <laughs> you know, they put on this, games that were they were not devoid of protest as some of you know pussy riot was a presence at uh, some of the activities there they maybe gain a per certain bit of uh, acceptance as a result of this of, of appearing to be normal and then they go and <laughs> crimea right shortly thereafter and then shortly thereafter that we find out that this massive doping scandal that was uh, something that just certainly squandered whatever goodwill that they may have uh, acquired as a result of these various mega events. 
And do you think the reason that they just continue to be able to compete, I mean, is it just a sort of power over the European institutions and the global ones? So they have been players in that world, in the world of international sports federations and all the rest of that. And they have been the host of numbers of events like track and field back in 2013, which we now know is also marred by doping on on the Russian team. And uh, it says something about the moral ambiguity of the people who run these federations and and include the IOC and FIFA as federations, that that they're willing to uh, put up with that in order to find good platforms for their own uh, activities. And there's a sort of mutual uh, usefulness of both sides to to do this. Does that elaborate doping scandal speak to the importance of sports somehow to Russian nationalism and political power, or is this something different? That's a good question, because Russian nationalism has always historically been a kind of slippery concept, and it's not the kind of knee-jerk nationalism that we may associate with other countries either in Europe or other parts of the world, uh, precisely because it was always part, and the Soviet Union was part, and the Russian Federation even, is a multinational empire. This is not a uniformly Russian place, even now, despite fact that so many of these national republics have split off and are now their own separate nations, as you can see, fairly precarious relations with the larger Soviet Russian mass. But Russia itself, even a place like Moscow, is filled with Ukrainians, it's filled with Armenians, it's filled with Georgians, dare I say. And uh, so how that plays into Russian nationalism is very mixed. And Russian nationalism, I say, is complicated because on one level, they seek to use Russian nationalism to bind these non-Russian entities and social groups or really cultural groups within their borders and and get them to be supporters of the government. On the other hand, when they do this, of course, it undermines that. And so I'm wondering what it means now to be Ukrainian and Ukrainian connected personally to what's going on in Ukraine itself and then living in Russia at this moment. It's something I would not envy them. So to back up for a minute, walk us through for people who don't know, including me, um, following the fall of the Soviet Union, we know that as the countries gained, different countries gained independence, they gained kind of sports status. Right. And we're assuming that that was an important piece of their, you know, that, that Ukrainian nationalism, it was important to have independent sports organizations. Exactly. And, and in fact, the Ukrainian Football Federation pulled out of the Soviet League in 1990, that is a year before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they were really the first to form their own uh, league, which was a a mixed success. Dynamo Kiev, at least at that point, initially dominated uh, enormously over these other smaller towns and places where they didn't even have stadiums that you would call adequate for so-called big time football. Sometimes people described it as a village football. Uh, on the other hand, it has evolved into a league of some substance and the quality of the play is, is you know, passable. But uh, the Soviet Union collapses when it does collapse along the lines of the various nations and that were part of the various republics that are themselves not necessarily uh, uniformly, let's say, Georgian. Not everybody living in Georgia is a Georgian. There's other nationalities, other cultural groups that are part of that. Same thing with Armenia, same thing certainly with Ukraine and even in the Baltic countries. And the Baltic countries came out 
of the Soviet League uh, shortly after the Ukrainians did. Again, this is before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so uh, when the Soviet Union comes apart, it goes from uh, one big country to 14 smaller countries and one big, obviously highly problematic one as we see now. And so uh, the process by which those nations used football, used soccer to brand themselves and to achieve an international visibility is a very interesting one and part of what happened during the 90s in the noughts. Is there a difference in the way that they used soccer or football versus the way that they use Olympic sports? Or should we understand this as the same, you know, giant sports bodies? That's a really good question because I've argued uh, in, in my own work that there's a very fundamental difference between Olympic sport and uh, football because you have in Olympic sport, the nation being ever since whatever, 1908 has been the fundamental unit by which people participate. And so that process of being part of the Olympic movement uh, involves a organization on the national level. With football, we have clubs that emerge from social groups and other workplace situations and things like that, which have maybe different classes of, of basis of support, different supporter bases, and those complicate the whole question of national unity. So I spent time in Kiev, and it was a time when uh, Spartak, I remember, played one particular game and, and did quite well uh, in, in the UEFA Cup match. And the bartender uh, who I was talking to said, well, you know, good for Spartak. You know? And so on one level, there's a kind of uh, mutual respect. On another, there's tremendous violent, often violent tension between, say, fans of Dinamo Kiev and fans of Spartak in their respective cities when one team or another visited. So it has been something that has been, a, again, a centrifugal force for a long time and continues to be that. Are there any clubs that are identified specifically as anti-authoritarian or anti-Putin? I wrote this book. <laughs> about Spartak Moscow, which of course yes. had something like that position mm -hmm. in, uh, in the Soviet period, but it has changed. And it now is a kind of a hotbed of Russian nationalists. And you sometimes see uh, American Confederate flags uh, flying in their fan sections on road games. And it's very uh, saddening to me as someone who kind of saw them as a kind of island of hope and then otherwise sometimes dismal sea of well, the Soviet Union was at times. And so uh, Bartok, yes, but now it's, it's really hard to say. Uh, and certainly, you know, the ownership of those teams and the people who control those teams has become more complicated and it tends to be people in the business world who are, are doing that, even though you have a team like Dynamo, which is formally part of the uh, secret police and the state security. You have uh, the army team, Ceska, and then you have Spartak, which is basically now a kind of private company. And speaking of ownership, um, another thing that we've seen in coming out during this conflict is the idea of, you know, economic sanctions, holding assets of Russians abroad, and Chelsea, which plays in the Premier League, right. has come up as one of those because Abramovich uh, is the owner of Chelsea, and he's now temporarily tried to give it to the Charitable Foundation. Right. I was just reading about that this morning. Yeah. 
What do you think about that? Well, it's a kind of next step of a process that has really been for him been going on for quite some time. I mean, he is, first of all, he's not someone who's allowed to spend time safely in, in uh, the United Kingdom at this point. So you don't see him in the games. He's, you know, in Israel part of the time. And I don't know, I guess he's on his yacht a lot of the time. And so he's been pulling away whatever that might mean, at least on the overt uh, official level, uh, for some time. And this is a kind of further step, obviously, because of the, the actions of the elites, Russian elites, of which he, of course, is a part. He is a walking, talking, 100% oligarch and who acquired his, his wealth under uh, somewhat murky circumstances back in the 1990s. So uh, I was just reading about this, and you know, this is something that starts in 2003, he becomes part of this process by which we now see Man City and you know who knows what, who else owning what, where. And uh, so I am not sure I fully understand what his relationship is to Chelsea Football Club at this point, but, uh, Certainly, it's something that I would doubt that he is really totally severed from their decision-making process. Somebody I was reading just in The Guardian about how what's going to happen now is, is the charitable foundation going to decide who to play at center forward? Are they going to acquire somebody new? Are they, you know, are they going to raise ticket prices? Are they going to name a new manager? You know, all, all those sorts of things that are up in the air right now. And, and then they lost the, the Carabao Cup final yesterday. So serves them right. Well, do you think, um, do you think this really hurts? I mean, because ultimately we're asking all of this and we're talking all of this because we're pretty horrified about what's happening in Ukraine. Is there any way in which this is effective, these types of actions in, in, I don't, deterring Russian aggression? Well, it hasn't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the other thing that can deter Russian aggression is the very brave uh, fighters in Ukraine right now. It's uh, it's going to be hard, and I hope they can get some kind of uh, at least temporary agreement uh, with these talks that are going on now. I'm not sure. Everybody is, of course, terribly impressed by Zelensky, who seemed to be such a you know, kind of beaten down figure in the time of the whole Trump phone call episode. Now appears to be a really quite an impressive person. He's a wonderful actor. You know, some of you know a comedian but he has really stepped into a different role. And I guess he knows how to play a role and the role he's playing as a, a national savior. And to the extent that he, which, who we hope he stays alive and uh, manages to somehow get out of this with his skin and the nation's skin uh, are, uh, are things that we can uh, in our own sphere, limited as it is, limited as we are in terms of our ability as academics to impact anybody's foreign policy or anybody's domestic policy. We, uh, we do it. And uh, in our bit of the world, uh, we make a, a stand and we bring our moral, political, and cultural concerns to what we do. And that's, in fact, how we justify it. The tricky part about sports history, of course, is I don't have to tell you, Brenda, is that uh, you know, when we, there was a time in sports history writing when we tried to justify doing it is by saying that sport and politics did mix, you know, and that, that sport reflected these larger societies. Now, one thing we've learned, I suspect, in the last, say, 10 years or so is that sports can also mask uh, historical and political realities. And certainly the, the idea that you hold an Olympics in a place like Sochi and invest in all of the sort of 
problematic morality of the International Olympic Committee, and then just simply uh, behind the scenes do things that are utterly opposite to those not poorly, uh, I mean, let's say poorly uh, held beliefs uh, are uh, you know undermining that. And so, you know, the Soviet Union in the so back in the day it was good at the Olympics. It didn't mean that they were a stronger, more powerful nation than the United States. They were just better at that particular, very uh, circumscribed platform. One of which uh, has an interesting, of course, gen gender component in terms of the way they were able to uh, deploy women's sports in the Olympic uh, context, and obviously uh, not so much in the football context. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you're a person who is just listening to all the news cycle right now, watching these horrifying images, what do you think, if anything, we're not getting? You know, what are we missing in terms of understanding Ukraine, Ukrainian history, anything? Well, some of that stuff is, is not, some of what people are not getting uh, are this problem where uh, there was an article recently I was reading about how this problem of we're caught here between massive falseness and lies, I, the, especially what the Russians are saying now about what's going on in Ukraine, and the complicated history of the West and the way in which the, uh, the Cold War ended is uh, something that uh, is not, not simple and, and troubling for people of goodwill. Is a, that's a euphemism, I suppose. But having said that, you know, this was a place that was now has a Jewish president, but some of the anti-Semitic past of, of Ukraine, its collaboration and, you know, with the Nazis back in World War II are things that, you know, still uh, are things that one has to think about, but not, of course, change one's fundamental sympathy now. But having said that, you know, here we have this uh, likable Jewish fella who's now the president of Ukraine. Who would have thought that, right? Uh, on the other hand, we had this likable black man you know, who was the president of the United States. And of course, racism somehow didn't disappear. Mm. So I am, I feel complicated in terms of their past history, but, uh, you know, having spent time there and uh, understood the differences even back in the Soviet period, that uh, one understands their uh, you know, willingness to take these kinds of chances. But I, for one, hope that they can hold out enough that they can continue to uh, that the international uh, community can continue to 
harm the Soviet, I'm sorry, the Russian economy, and, uh, and as such, fan and uh, foment dissent and disagreement in the in the Russian case. So I'm looking as much as I can at those people in the streets in Moscow and St. Petersburg, and hopefully you know, that these demonstrations are not as big as the ones in 2011 after the elections, and that of course didn't change things. But we just have to have hope. For those of us who want to follow them, I mean, where do we where do we look to find out what's happening on the streets there? Where do you where do you try to figure this out? Well, for sports, there's a very good uh, website called sports.ru, S-O-P-R-T-S dot R-U. And if you go on it, you offer the English translation of everything that's on there. And they've been mm. fairly uh, explicit in saying what's happened. They haven't hidden the fact that, that, you know, that the Spartak will probably not play Leipzig in the, in the Europa Cup and things like that. You know, they've covered the fact that the uh, Champions League final has been taken away from St. Petersburg and given to Paris. And so uh, the people who uh, work there, I think, are fairly clear-eyed and honest. And so that's a place that people can look in terms of how it plays out in sports. Uh, I think there's another uh, sports site called sportexpress.ru, which is the old newspaper that my friends used to work at, and I spent a lot of time being part of. I think they have a, an English translation for their site as well. Cool, thank you. Is there anything else I haven't asked that you think I should, or that you want to talk about? We need to understand what the past history was in terms of things like the way that the Soviet Union collapsed, and that was replaced by uh, a different regime that was containing Russian slash Soviet expansion uh, during the 19th, 20th century, that the way the Soviet Union collapsed was nonviolent because the promise was made to Gorbachev that uh, NATO would not expand, that these Europe, Eastern European countries like Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, et cetera, would not become part of NATO. And they, of course, have. That has, is what has been driving Putin. And he, in fact, said the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. Some may disagree with that. Certainly most of us would. You know, so I worry about the fact that if I raise these issues and they say, here are these things that are troubling me to argue that maybe we have to see what our own role was, what NATO role was in this time that we've come to, doesn't mean that I in any way approve of what's happening now or try to apologize for it. But so I feel a lot of conflict uh, you know, in terms of my own view of history and in terms of what's going on now. Well, that's a general theme of this show. Um, <laughs> nuance, contradiction. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it came up this week on our show. We, we discussed this and it was brought up the concept of an Olympic truce. And Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> Okay. And what's your what, what's your reaction to that? As we say in uh, scientific circles, the Olympic truce is a pile of crap. There you go. <laughs> that was my reaction. So the Olympic truce, <laughs> the Olympic truce was not that they stopped the war, right? And uh, what happened was is that during the Olympic Games, athletes had the right to travel to Olympia from other parts of the ancient Greek Empire uh, safely. But it didn't mean that the war stopped. It may have abated at some point. But this idea to take things that happened in the ancient world, uh, which the Olympics, of course, embraces and uncritically embraces the classical world of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and then tries to apply it to the present, and you get something that's completely ridiculous. So I remember working at the Olympics in 1998 for uh, 
for CBS, and I forget what war was going on at that point in time, and Juan Antonio Samaranch, again, saying, oh, the Olympics, the Olympic Games are a force for peace, and therefore we can uh, you know, have our Olympic truce and, and please see to it that it is enforced, which of course it hasn't. So, you know, I think the entire Olympic apparatus is in fact something that emerges as, I don't have to tell you, not from ancient Greece, but in fact from the British public schools and the British sport as it was organized and, and developed in the 19th century in Great Britain. And uh, this is what, in fact, inspired Coubertin originally and what he was trying to do in terms of bringing in the ancient Greece part of the puzzle was that he needed the Germans to be part of his enterprise. And at that point in time, there was enormous Philo-Hellenism. Germans were all over, all over uh, contemporary Greece uh, doing archaeological digs and stealing treasures and bringing them to their museums, et cetera, et cetera. And in order to get the Germans on board, uh, Coubertin had to uh, make reference to uh, the ancient Greek tradition that was being revived by the Olympic Games. But in fact, it was something that was a lot more problematic because after all, remember the uh, initial Olympic Games, you know, in 1896, do not have women and do not have working people. Yeah. You know, so just what you're speaking to right now, I mean, this reflection, when it came up, I sort of said, you know, I mean, does the U.S. having invaded Afghanistan, for, you know, and been in decades in Iraq? I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. The idea that the United States would violate some independent nation's borders, of course, it never could have happened. Right? <laughs> so in that sense, what I'm trying to bring out is that these reflections don't actually come from a place of um, who cares about Putin or who who cares about Ukraine, but but actually the opposite, which is, you know, we're trying to interrogate all the ways in which people are complicit, including, you know, the country that we live in. And it comes from a place of deep empathy. Right. And sometimes I think when you get academics on to certain shows and, and we just tear into U.S. foreign policy, it seems hard for us to make the point, or it's rare to have the time to make the point that this isn't, this isn't about just um, taking blame into one government and away from Putin, but instead it's, it's about uh, looking at the entire sort of relationships and contradictions. Yeah, if not us, who? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's why we get paid the big bucks, Bob. That's the big book. <laughs> it's the glamorous academic lifestyle you've all heard of. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, Professor Bob Edelman, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. We really appreciate your time and um, share your deep concern um, with Ukrainians and um, as much solidarity as we can always and possibly muster. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for all the great questions. And I hope we can do it again sometime. <laughs>